Welcome to my mommy's podcast. This episode is sponsored by Wellness. That's wellness with an E on the end. It's my new all-natural personal care line. Our whitening toothpaste is especially a favorite. It's a mineralizing blend of natural ingredients that supports oral health naturally. It's based on the original recipe that I developed over a decade ago when I was struggling through some oral health problems. And it has now been through almost a hundred iterations to create what I believe is truly the best natural toothpaste available. Many types of toothpaste contain ingredients that you might find in paint and that you certainly don't want in your mouth. But ours is enamel friendly and oral biome friendly so that you can keep your teeth and your gums happy all day long and all night long. Check it out and learn more about our whitening toothpaste and all of our products including our natural hair food at wellness.com. That's W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S-E.com. This podcast is brought to you by Just Thrive, a company that is near and dear to my heart and to my gut. Gut health is really connected to everything. And in today's world, we encounter a lot of things that tend to mess with our gut bacteria, from food to stress and an abundance of environmental toxins. And the gut has been called the second brain with good reason. We learn more each day about its vital role in all aspects of health, from skin to obviously digestion to energy and even brain health. And Just Thrive Probiotic is the first one I've seen and felt a noticeable difference from almost immediately. They have a patented Bacillus Indicus HU36 strain that helps turn your gut into an antioxidant factory, so it's working all the time to benefit you. Since focusing on my gut and making these a regular part of my life, I've definitely seen some big digestive and skin changes. And the Just Thrive probiotic is vegan, dairy-free, histamine-free, which is a big one for probiotics, non-GMO, and made without soy, sugar, salt, corn, nuts, or gluten. So it's safe for practically everyone. I even sprinkle it on my kids' food, and I bake it into products since it can survive up to 450 degree heat. And this is another important tidbit when it comes to probiotics. You want a probiotic that can survive at temperature because if it can't, it's likely not going to survive the pretty harsh atmosphere of your stomach. I love all of their products, and they I've especially been enjoying lately also their prebiotic drink, which is absolutely delicious. My kids love it too, and is another way to benefit your gut. You can check them out at justthrivehealth.com forward slash wellnessmama. And if you use the code wellnessmama15, you'll save 15% at checkout. So again, justthrivehealth.com slash wellnessmama and the code wellnessmama15. Hello and welcome to the Wellness Mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com and wellness.com. That's wellness with an E on the end. And today, it's always a pleasure to chat with Justin Mayers, who's a friend of mine and also the founder and CEO of Kettle and Fire Bone Broth. But today, we go deep on regenerative agriculture and as a solution to climate issues and health issues. And I really enjoyed, I enjoy every conversation with Justin, but really enjoyed this one because we go into why this idea that it's environmentally conscious to be plant-based is a false dichotomy and the reason that livestock are not the problem. In fact, even conventionally raised livestock aren't the problem, but the difference between the different ways that animals are raised and how certain ways can actually make them net positive for the planet and for our health and then why we actually need cows to benefit the environment. And he makes some great points about how we could actually reverse climate change within the span of a few decades if we could convert 25% of agricultural land to regenerative agriculture instead. On a company level, he talks about how Right now, there simply isn't even enough supply of regeneratively raised animals on the market available for the companies who need it and how we as consumers and on the larger scale, people like him as companies can start to shift this trend and really move the needle. So very fascinating episode that delves into the climate side, delves into the health side and into the consumer side and what we can all do. And at the end, I also quiz Justin on his top health tips and he shares quite a few that are completely free or very inexpensive and really, really big game changers. So lots to learn from this episode. Let's jump in. Justin, welcome back. Thank you. Super excited to be here. Well, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. And this topic especially is near and dear to my heart. It's one I've been researching quite a bit lately and it's become more and more a topic of mainstream conversation as well. And I think it's a really important one to understand, especially for all the parents listening, because there are so many implications here. And certainly we've all seen the news stories in the past few years, especially about the problems with livestock and emissions and this this big trend toward really pushing plant-based 
um, different types of plant-based alternatives. And we can go a lot of different directions with that. But I think to start with the cows, can you walk us through some of the misconceptions that are being talked about when it comes to raising livestock? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I'm sure that you and some of the listeners have kind of seen these various, uh, let's call them posts or sort of media baiting things from Epicurious saying like, oh, we're no longer going to include recipes about beef or, you know, Eleven Madison is now opening a beef free restaurant. And sort of the reason that they're giving for a lot of this stuff is the environmental argument or, or what they claim the environmental argument is, which basically goes like there are a massive amount of emissions that are caused by beef and animal agriculture, specifically beef. That's the biggest offender as the argument goes. And this is causing climate change, which we need to reverse in order to save the planet. And so they're, they're tying this sort of like eat less beef into by doing so you're saving the planet narrative. And what I wanted to do, and I wrote a long like blog post on this recently, but I kind of like have just seen this narrative come up more and more and more. And people are starting to talk about like, oh, you know, I'm environmentally conscious or I care about X, Y, and Z, you know, I'm going to start eating less beef. And so as I kind of dug into the science, things that Epicureans claimed like 15% of all emissions are as a result of animal agriculture, these things just aren't true. Like if you actually look at the EPA estimates around emissions, EPA estimates that livestock worldwide make up about 3.9% of all GHG emissions, which definitely isn't nothing, but it's nowhere near the 15% number that a lot of these groups are citing for a reason to avoid climate change. And where that sort of 15% number comes from, if you dig in, uh, it actually comes from a study where they basically, the authors redacted that 15% claim and said, oh, this is actually an issue. Like they effectively measured all inputs to a cow's life cycle, including tailpipe emissions to transport grain that then eventually got fed to the cattle and compared that against uh, a non-holistic view, some of the other comparisons they were doing. And so the author said, no, this is actually wrong. They retracted it and got it much closer to the 3.9% number that the EPA has talked about. And so, I mean, I can talk a lot about how I think at a high level, the beef is bad for the environment narrative is just not true. But even just digging into what's often people's first claim or first introduction to this, this idea and this story, uh, it, it's just like factually incorrect. Uh, and so that, that's kind of where I wanted to start and looked into it. And very quickly, it was like, oh, this isn't necessarily right. And absolutely, that also seems like a false dichotomy as well. And I think people feel that guilt a lot of like, oh, I care very much about animals and the environment, therefore I should be plant-based. And like you said, this is just one example, but that number is so small compared to cars, compared to big agriculture for one. And I would guess there's also a tremendous difference when you're, if you separate out into separate groups, feedlot, CAFO farm, cows versus the cow, because what I've researched and we've had um, the authors of sacred cow on here before, like there's actually a very strong argument for ethically raised livestock being extremely beneficial to the environment. And that's not getting talked about enough. Totally. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the data, it's like, no matter which way you slice it, most of our emissions problems come from, uh, you know, fossil fuels, oil and gas, like the, the energy industry. That, that's just how it is. Like if you look at uh, North America, you know, 200 million years ago, there were hundreds of millions of ruminants. So buffalo, deer, uh, you know, the like kind of roaming the plains of North America, no climate issues. <laughs> then we had a little thing called the industrial revolution. We start pulling all of this stored energy out of the ground and, you know, burning it for fuel, releasing those emissions into the air. And all of a sudden climate change is a big issue. I don't think that beef is at all the core of that big flip from climate is not a big deal to, oh, wow, we have a ton of uh, CO2 emissions in our atmosphere. Like to me, just from a first principle standpoint, it just doesn't make sense. And so that's why I, I want to dig in and why like we've started to talk about this both as a company and also how I've started to talk about it as an individual, uh, because I think that this narrative is like really harmful to consumers. Uh, it's harmful to society in many ways, like to the extent that people believe that going vegan is going to be good for the planet. Like that impacts policy decisions. It impacts how people decide to raise their kids. It, it, makes, it impacts a whole host of decisions, which I think could really lead to uh, people more and more taking meat out of the, the sort of food supply system. And to the extent that people do that, like that's a really bad thing from a human nutrition and welfare standpoint. Uh, like I think that new, meat is the most nutrient dense or one of the most nutrient dense foods out there. You know, and, and I think that to take that away from kids, to take that out of cafeterias, to take that out of kids' lunches, you know, parents, how they're cooking for their families, I think it's just a tremendously bad thing. 
Yeah, absolutely. And the irony here is that the marketing and the confusion around this has actually led to an increase in big agriculture. And I used to live in an area where corn, wheat, and soybeans were grown regularly. And I saw firsthand the environmental impact of those foods and how they depleted the soil and all the chemicals that got sprayed on them. And so this shift away from traditional foods like meat has increased that. And we're seeing this like kind of now huge boom of fake meat and all that comes with that. And what I don't see being adequately contrasted is the environmental impact of that and the emissions and all of the things related to that. And it's just talked about and assumed that it's a better alternative, but that has a huge impact as well. Right? Yeah, no, it's, it's horrible. I mean, in, in so many ways, like an over-reliance on chemical agriculture and industrial agriculture has led to a lot of the issues that we're seeing today. Like you basically didn't see so many of the chronic conditions that you see in today's Americans, uh, you know, 80, 90 years ago. I think that so much of the, the chronic diseases, illnesses, things that we're seeing today is a result of chemical agriculture system, chemically based agriculture system and industrial ag that creates super cheap, highly processed, highly chemicalized products that just cause a lot of problems for people's health. And I, I think that's the, the piece that is often missing in this, in this debate and narrative is like, it's not like you're removing, let's say in this narrative is true. It's not like you're taking beef out of someone's uh, diet and replacing it with nothing. Like in many cases, these companies are saying, well, let's replace it with super cheap, uh, you know, glyphosate sprayed, uh, industrial monocrops, corn, soy, wheat. Let's replace it with processed foods. Let's replace it with like Beyond Burgers and Light Life and some of these other brands that are selling plant-based meats, where if you look in the ingredients, you're just like, this is just processed foods 2.0 with an environmental spin. Like in, in, you know, in the 1980s, the whole idea was like, switch out, uh, you know, switch out your ghee, butter, all of this for lard or, or sorry, for margarine and other things that had a bunch of trans fats because it has low saturated fat, which would be better, better for you. That was sort of the narrative. It was like, improve your health, switch to our highly processed, you know, crappy kind of food products. Now I think the narrative is like much more tied to environmentalism where it says, you know, save the planet, switch from a nutritionally complete, ancestrally appropriate food source like meat and go for a Beyond Burger, an Impossible Burger, a, you know, Light Life or whatever it is that has a ton of inflammatory vegetable oils, has highly processed ingredients, soy, peas, wheat, like all this sort of stuff that, you know, candidly, if you were to say, let's just replace 30 or 40% of someone's calories with these sort of plant-based meat alternatives, you're just going to have a much less healthy human. If someone said replace meat with cereal, people would be like, no, that's clearly a bad idea. But if you say, oh, replace it with plant-based meat, which is similarly high in carbohydrates, high in vegetable oils, lacks a lot of key nutrients and functional ingredients. It's like all of a sudden that's, that's okay in this narrative that I think a lot of people are hearing today, which is just crazy to me. That's a great correlation because you're talking about replacing a single ingredient food with something that has, in some of these cases, 40 plus ingredients. And so it would be similar to like, if you were gonna replace all vegetables in your diet with some kind of processed chip made out of vegetables, like we would recognize that and be like, obviously that's not a great idea. We shouldn't do that. And I think we don't also like, to your point, we don't talk enough about that negative consequence of glyphosate and these chemicals that are putting in the environment. I know um, a common friend of ours, Todd from Dry Farm, they lab test all of their wines and they're unable to buy US wines because there are none that are not contaminated with glyphosate, even ones that have never been sprayed. And it's because it is so, our soils are so contaminated now that even the groundwater has enough trace glyphosate that it's ending up in our wines, which means it's also ending up in our food. And which means our kids are exposed to this constantly. And so there's this, like we've set up this false dichotomy that glorifies these foods that are also that now creating detrimental secondary effects. And the irony being as well is like the answer to some of these problems, like when you said we go back to first principles, is that regenerative agriculture very much could solve these problems if we tackle it correctly. So can you talk about like the CO2 thing and when it comes to the regenerative side and how this can actually be part of the solution? Totally. Yeah. So, you know, we kind of, we're talking a little bit about how beef actually isn't bad for the environment, not only from an emission standpoint that's overstated, uh, but all of the studies that have been done have been done on animals that are raised in concentrated animal feedlots that for feeding operations that are just frankly kind of disgusting. Like if you look at bundling a bunch of cows into a very small uh, you know, area, making them eat non-ancestrally appropriate diets, i.e. a bunch of sor uh, <laughs> sorn, soy, corn, wheat, uh, things like that. Of course, there's going to be issues with like their digestive tract and the like. I mean, if you just 
gave a human no room to move, couldn't let them outside and then just force fed them only beans. Like I guarantee you, you're going to have a gassier, less healthy human than, than you or I. And so I think that it, it is important to look a lot at how these animals are raised. And one of the things that's exciting to me is as I see the, the trend and the interest and the, the conversation, can, you know, more and more turning towards environmentalism and talking about climate change and how beef is, is a cause of that, I very much disagree with that. But I do think that, that the meat industry and sort of our industry in the food world has an answer, which is like regenerative agriculture. And I mean, I think that regenerative from the studies that I've seen is actually a pretty incredible technology, if you want to call it that. It's basically a way of raising animals, you know, animals and crops in a, in a way that tries to build soil health and pull carbon out of the atmosphere and into the ground where it was, you know, 250 years ago or so. And so the studies that I've seen, specifically a Qantas study, showed that I think for every pound of regenerative beef that was produced on, on this one uh, farm where they ran the study um, called White Oak Pastures, they basically were sequestering about four pounds of carbon or CO2 uh, for, for every pound of beef. And so I think that like figuring out how we can move more ranchers, farmers and the like to a regenerative system is actually how we're going to make progress from a climate standpoint. Not only does it mean there's healthier animals, not only do healthier animals mean, you know, a healthier end product for, for you and I, for human consumers, but it also can actually sequester carbon, which builds soil health, means the soils are more resilient and also just like creates a much, much healthier, better ecosystem. Like I saw one, um, one estimate after looking at the Qantas study pointed to they're, they're probably uh, with about 20 to 25% conversion of agricultural lands, we could pretty much reverse climate change. Like if we instead moved away from industrial agriculture and uh, you know, a system of agriculture that, that relies really heavily on chemical and other inputs, and we shifted that to fully regenerative system, we could literally offset and reverse all of the issues that we've had with climate change, you know, assuming we do that over the next, I think, decade or so it was. And so I'm like incredibly bullish on this trend, both from a environmental standpoint and also from the standpoint of like, hey, you consumer, if regenerative and if environmental issues are something that you care about, you should lean in and, you, and your dollars can actually help make a difference by buying products that are regenerative, supporting regenerative ranchers and sort of being at the forefront of the regenerative movement, which to me, I think we're in like ending one of the regenerative movement and that 30 years from now, 50 years from now, it's going to look a lot like organic was, uh, you know, has over the last couple of decades, where it's just going to be something that people are aware of. It's something they believe in and it's something that they actually like care quite a lot about. I'm really hopeful for that as well. And I think to your point, we can all agree, whether we're talking about people who choose to eat vegan, whether we're talking about people who care about the environment, we can all agree that feedlot farms are not good for animals or for the planet. I don't hear anyone arguing for those conditions at all, of course. And I've always thought that when for change to happen at a large scale, you need multiple pieces, two of them being us all making choices on a grassroots level in our own families. And that's the part I speak to quite often, but also companies choosing that at a larger scale, because that's a much bigger exponential change at one time because of the purchasing power of large companies. And I know that this is really top of mind for you guys as well. And while running a food company where, of course, you have to take into account profit and everything else, you guys are so dedicated to making choices that are good for the environment and good for the consumer. So can you talk a little bit about your dedication on the large scale at a company level to that and how you're implementing kind of this dedication to regenerative farming in the company? Totally. Yeah. So we've been working for a very long time on a setting up a regenerative product line. At first, you know, I, I started reading and going down the regenerative rabbit hole, started getting really into the environmental impact of beef and, you know, specifically how our food system and our, you know, the, the world that I operate in, which is the, the world of food brands, how the impact that we make on the environment and what that means for our food system and people's health. And as I was digging in, I was like, oh man, kettle and fire really needs to be a part of this regenerative movement. Like we actually have the ability to make an impact you know, we are selling millions of dollars of product every year. We're in about 12,000 stores. Like maybe we actually could, could take a swing and, and sort of try and establish ourselves as a leader in the regenerative movement. And so what we, what we kind of saw is regenerative is, is the new standard for human health and like planet benefits. And we wanted to get involved. And so we decided that we were going to look at potentially transitioning our entire supply chain to using bones that were made from regeneratively raised animals. And as we kind of dug in, what we realized very quickly was 
there's not enough supply. Like even if a company at our size, and we're not, we're not Campbell's, we're not General Mills, we're not any of these massive food companies, even a company our size, like just physically cannot buy enough regeneratively raised bones so that our entire product line is made from animals raised using regenerative agriculture. And so what, um, what we kind of saw after digging in and learning about this, talking to ranchers, talking to suppliers, talking to a, a bunch of groups, you know, we just realized that it was going to be impossible for us to transition everything over. And so we, what we decided to do instead is we uh, are now launching a line of regenerative bone broths. And so, you know, we're launching a beef and a chicken bone broth that are made, made with bones from farms and ranchers that are using regenerative agriculture. We're paying a premium to buy these bones. Uh, you know, we're, we're making them in the exact same product that many of our consumers know and love, but we're just deciding to, to pay a little bit more to our suppliers and use regenerative bones, hopefully with the aim to sort of create a, a profit and a financial incentive for more and more ranchers and farmers to switch more of their supply chains from, you know, either conventional to regenerative or even like organic to regenerative or grass-fed, grass-finished to regenerative. And we, we wanted to sort of provide the, be one of the first companies in the space, not only so that there's a financial incentive, like, hey, if you switch over, Kettle and Fire will buy bones for you if you're transitioning from a grass-fed to a regenerative operation. Uh, but we also wanted to get the product out there just to do a little bit of education uh, with our consumer base around what is regenerative, why does it matter, what's its impact on the planet, what does it mean from a nutritional standpoint, uh, all of these kind of things. So I'm, I'm super excited. It's been wildly challenging in a lot of ways to work on launching a fully regenerative product line, but I'm super excited that we got it done. Well, I'm super excited that it exists on a national scale now. And I know that you also would be the first to join me in encouraging people on a smaller scale too, like each of us in our own homes as we buy meat to find local farmers, regenerative farmers and support the ecosystem in that way. Because like you said, as we as there's demand increases and as all of us are asking for this, like the more awareness there is on a small scale too, that also over time helps create larger supply, which to your point, I'm really hopeful that over the next 10, 20 years, we're going to see this become as important as organic and non-GMO have become as part of the conversation. And I think that requires all of us, including everybody listening, becoming aware of this and making those micro choices day to day. Um, and then it's also super convenient that we now have national options as well, but huge kudos to you guys for choosing that on a company-wide level. Cause I can only imagine all the complexity that went along with that. Yeah, it's not easy. <laughs> I think our operations team wanted to kill me at a couple different points, but uh, but we got it done and I'm, I'm super proud of the whole team and everyone is now really excited about regenerative, especially as we've learned more about it. Uh, so I, it, I'm thrilled. I mean, I'm hopeful that, you know, 10 years from now, not only is regenerative something that bigger brands and national brands like us are, are talking about and bought into, but exactly like you said, if consumers have a relationship with their farmer and they're talking to their farmer saying like, Hey, I'm hearing about regenerative. Are you doing this? Are you not? Uh, that is, that is like how change happens is at the ground roots, you know, ground roots kind of level where consumers are just building a relationship with the products that they're eating, the food they're consuming, uh, and really, I think, starting to make change at that, at that level. So I'm hugely in support of that um, and hugely in support in general of a more local kind of food system where farmers are using the right practices and consumers understand what the ways that their farmer is raising, feeding, and, you know, processing their, their sort of animals and crops. And to go a little deeper on one of your earlier points as well is like, I think it's important to understand when we talk about climate related issues, like there's some pretty grim predictions if we don't turn things around pretty quickly. And the two biggest areas that we need to concentrate and do that are ocean health and soil health, because those are the ones that directly impact the climate changes that are occurring on a wide scale. So it's great that we all, for instance, recycle and that we're all hopefully making some of these climate conscious choices. But when you rank these things against each other, the things that we do that support the soil or the ability of the ocean to stay healthy and continue creating oxygen, those are the ones that literally are vital for human survival, especially over the next few decades. Are there other ways that we as consumers can get more educated or help to work toward that movement? Because I know you've done so much research on this and, and written about it. I'll make sure I include your articles about it. But um, any other suggestions on a consumer level that we can all do to help move that forward? Yeah, it's a great question. I think buying regenerative uh, products and supporting brands that are following regenerative practices, I think is a great one. Uh, you know, if you're someone that is investing in the stock market or like looking at potentially putting your money where in an area that you care about, there's some really cool platforms cropping up that allow you to do so. Like there's a company called Go Steward. I think it's gosteward.com that where I, I can go there, I can find a small regenerative rancher 
in Austin, say outside Austin where I live. And if that guy needs 50 grand, 75 grand to buy some equipment and transition his small, you know, plot of farm over to regenerative agriculture, I can actually lend him that money and get a, you know, six to 8% return. I think that's kind of a cool thing that if you're, if you're someone that wants to put your money to work in an area or a cause you believe in uh, is really kind of neat, you know, so buying, I think buying products, buying locally is a big thing, supporting your local restaurants and uh, farmers and the like talking to them about ingredients that you're sourcing. And then also I think a big piece of this is just educating people. Like for so many people, when I start to talk to them about why meat is actually not bad for the environment and about the benefits of regenerative agriculture, both from an environmental standpoint and a nutritional standpoint, that's, I think where change, you know, people are like, whoa, that's surprising. That's not something I've heard uh, that goes against the narrative that I've read about in, you know, the Washington post or whatever. And it, it really changes people's minds. And so I think the more that you can get informed and just have friendly conversations with your other well-meaning friends that are trying to do well in the world and, and do the right thing, uh, both for themselves and for the planet, I think that these like, you know, 10 million of these micro conversations and people being more willing to talk about these, these sorts of things really, really makes a difference. And so I, I wish there was like a, a better way that consumers could do this across the board, but I do think it just, it just comes down to like, what choices are you making as an individual? What are you doing to kind of spread the word and talk about this stuff with other people that might care about these issues? And that's, that's about all you can do, which is both, you know, may not feel like a lot, but also multiplied by 10, 30 million people. That's how real change happens. Absolutely. And I wanted to make sure we concentrated on the environmental piece first, because that's so top of mind in the media right now. But I think we also have to talk about the health impact of these foods, because there's also a misconception that meat is bad for you now, and that these other foods might be a healthier alternative. And I think that's another really important one to kind of take head on, because you've already touched on this a little bit, but I want to go deeper on this, because I know your entry into this world came from a health the health side as well, and that you've studied this side a lot, and that there's a missing piece of the conversation about, for instance, the nutrient availability per calorie when you're talking about animal-based foods versus these plant-based foods that don't have the same nutrient composition. And it's so important for me, for all the parents listening, because we know from the data there's that so many of the compounds in these regeneratively raised foods are vital for our kids for proper development. But I'd love to hear your take on the health impact as well, because I feel like it's very much a twofold issue, and this part isn't being properly talked about either. Yeah, completely. I mean, from what I've seen and what, what we talked about earlier, the thing that is really concerning to me is that people are talking about just entirely removing a super nutrient dense food like meat and replacing it with plant-based alternatives. I think that that, especially if you take off the environmental arguments, you know, ignore uh, some of the moral arguments that, that some from the vegan community would make. I think that just from a nutritional standpoint, there's basically no argument. Like, meat from a nutrient density, amino acids, proteins, all of these sorts of standpoints is just so much better uh, for, for human consumption than, you know, four ounces of kidney beans or one of these like fake meat sort of substitute products. And so I think that um, from, from studies that I've seen, you know, nutrient density across the board in meat, whether it's like complete proteins, uh, nutrients, amino acids, collagen, things like this, they just practically don't exist in plant-based products and not nearly to the degree that they do in meats and, and other animal products. And so I think to the extent that, that you're sort of looking at, you know, how do I give my kids the, the foods that they need to thrive to build a functioning immune system, to build gut health, to build joint health, to build skin health. Like in so many ways, you just need the full spectrum amino acids, the collagens, other things that, that you can pretty much only get from meat and animal products that, if, if you're just feeding them baby food or other things, it, you're just not going to get. And then I think also the, when you're looking at like, okay, let's say that I, I buy that there's much more nutrient density in meats versus plant proteins. What do I do from a meat quality standpoint? This is where I think regenerative really shines. Like if you look at, you know, antibiotic use and conventional versus regenerative products, like basically conventional products, you're getting trace antibiotics in a lot of the meats that you're eating. Uh, you're, you're often getting worse omega-6 to omega-3 fatty acid ratios than you are in grass-fed, grass-finished and regenerative products. You know, I, I think that like these are nutrient densities and differences that that actually can change the, the trajectory of like a kid's 
immune system, gut health, you know, all of their development in, the, in those senses, uh, which I think is also an important piece to talk about. It's like, you're not just making a better decision for the planet, but you're also making a better decision for you, the consumer and your family from a health and nutrition standpoint. Yeah. And you don't have to choose between those things because there are now like to this point, there's options that support all of those ideals. Um, and I know even Kettle and Fire in general was from the very beginning, kind of a health and wellness pursuit for you guys as well on a family level, right? Can you share a little of your story and your brother's story? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, so I started Kettle and Fire with my brother in 2015. Basically, I was doing a lot of CrossFit at the time and was looking for foods that would help me with recover and, you know, help me recover and heal. At the same time, my younger brother, Nick, who I started the company with, he was playing soccer and basically tore everything you can tear in, in your knee. And so he got surgery, was bedridden for eight weeks and was kind of like, asking me, you know, Justin, like what foods can I consume that will actually help with my recovery? And that's when we started looking at and talking about bone broth. I went deep reading about, you know, the benefits of the amino acids that are uniquely found in, in bone broth in, and in connective tissue, uh, collagens, you know, the like. He kind of was like looking around for foods that were, uh, there bone broth companies that were near him and we couldn't find anything. We we're like, oh, we should probably start a bone broth company. Like, this is something that people care about. This is something that has huge impact on gut health, skin health, joint health, and the like. And to, to our minds, no one was doing it right. Like no one at the time was sourcing from organic farms, using organic ingredients, using bones that were only from 100% grass-fed, grass-finished animals. And so it took us a lot of work. But you know, after about a year of prep and looking into things, uh, we launched Kettle and Fire in late 2015. Yeah. So I, I kind of like got here from the health standpoint on my own, just because I, I really wanted a, a product that I thought was made with high quality ingredients that checked the health boxes. And then just as we've been getting more into the food system and getting a better understanding of, you know, what, what do our foods actually do from a health standpoint? What do they mean for our nutrition? What do they mean for like how we feel? And then what do they mean to the planet? That's kind of gotten me further and further down, uh, down this like food wellness rabbit hole, which is eventually led to us doing this regenerative uh, bone broth line. And I know on my side, I've been writing about the benefits of bone broth for over a decade, ever since one of my children actually had some gut issues at birth. And it was hugely helpful in him recovering from those. Um, and my own research into these kind of ancestral foods that our grandmothers ironically knew about that we sort of ignored for a while and that now we're all starting to understand again. But it, I was so glad to now finally have an option that was nationwide when you guys launched, because that was the biggest pain point for people I talked to. And for me is bone broth is amazing and it's delicious and it takes a long time to make. And yep. <laughs> so I'm also grateful it exists on a large scale. And I know from being friends with you that, that this has led to a, a continued health and wellness pursuit. And so um, I love to ask if kind of what your own personal 80-20 is, or what are your most consistent health routines that you find are the biggest needle movers for you? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the first one is, uh, you know, where, where I started on this journey is started to get it get by getting exposed to paleo. And I think that that was a big paradigm shift for me. You know, the whole like eat what your ancestors ate thing just at the time blew my mind now feels much more obvious, but, uh, and it's gotten out there a little bit more, but for me, I think it all starts with like eating a, a primarily paleo diet. I try to stay very low carb. I try to be, uh, you know, eat very, very few processed foods. And then from there, I've sort of layered in other health routines. I don't think that I'm like, I'm not the guy who's like going to inject stem cells into his butt or anything like that. I'm not like a kind of out there on the biohacking spectrum, but some things that have worked really well for me, I think that like functional movement and understanding like range of motion in your joints, understanding how your body should and could be moving, do having like a daily practice a very intentional stretching and movement. That's been pretty transformative for me. I used to have a lot of like upper neck and uh, mid back pain and just working on a daily basis, just doing a couple minutes of very targeted exercise or exercises and stretches. And also funny enough, just like hanging from a pull-up bar for three to five minutes a day seems to have almost entirely gotten rid of like the pain and other stuff that I had going on in my back and neck. Uh, so that's cool. And then that that's been great. Um, sleep, I know people talk a lot about it is like not a crazy thing. I found that taking magnesium su supplements and trying to do like a, a wind down kind of meditation breath work thing before bed, uh, just again, a couple minutes has been, been pretty transformational. I also recently read, uh, I guess a year ago, I actually read breath by James, Net James Nestor, which highly recommend started, uh, taping my mouth as weird as that sounds at night. And not only has my girlfriend 
well, Beyonce now, been hugely uh, supportive of it from a, you know, snoring and kind of night noises standpoint. But I noticed on my aura ring, my, uh, my HRV actually went up quite a bit. So it went up about 25% uh, since I started mouth taping, which is pretty cool. And then on the, and not only is it cool, but like I also feel better and more energized when I wake up. Uh, and then outside of that, so like diet, sleep, movement, the only other thing I think that I've been really intentional about is over the last couple years, I've really tried to notice when I feel stressed and try and use that as like a trigger to sort of go deeper on why am I stressed? So not, not just like, oh, I'm feeling stressed. I'm about to talk to this person. Usually if I'm about to have a hard conversation and I'm feeling stressed, like that's more of a signal that there's something deeper there that I like need to work through on my own. Uh, whether that's like, I don't feel great in how I'm relating to this person, or I feel like this person has wronged me and I haven't communicated that or whatever it is. I've sort of been trying, um, trying this thing, which, which seems to have been really helpful from a stress standpoint where I view stress as a unit of information that there's like something I need to work through in my life. And when I feel stressed, I like try and actually hone in on that and use that as a, a key to sort of do some thinking and feeling through like, why am I feeling stressed when it comes to thinking about a conversation with this person or telling this person X, Y, or Z? Um, Cause that, that's usually, at least in my life, I found a, a signpost for like, Hey, there's something here that you've been kind of ignoring uh, and trying to put off. So I would say those are, those are some big things. Oh, and then honestly, drinking a lot less alcohol over the last couple of years has been, been one that's had a big impact on, uh, on my health and my life. That was a lot. <laughs> I love that you brought up this stress piece because that's actually been a recurring theme in my personal life and also in a few podcasts recently. And I think when you can reframe and view anything in life like that as instead of this is bad, and I think our, our tendency is to categorize things like, oh, stress is bad. Yep. Sadness is bad. This emotion is bad. And when you can pull back from that and reframe as what is this trying to teach me? and approach it with curiosity, it's, you're able to not just learn from it, but benefit from it. And it doesn't have to have a negative connotation. It can become a great teacher. This episode is sponsored by wellness. That's wellness with an E on the end. It's my new all natural personal care line. Our whitening toothpaste is especially a favorite. It's a mineralizing blend of natural ingredients that supports oral health naturally. It's based on the original recipe that I developed over a decade ago when I was struggling through some oral health problems. And it has now been through almost a hundred iterations to create what I believe is truly the best natural toothpaste available. Many types of toothpaste contain ingredients that you might find in paint and that you certainly don't want in your mouth. But ours is enamel friendly and oral biome friendly so that you can keep your teeth and your gums happy all day long and all night long. Check it out and learn more about our whitening toothpaste and all of our products including our natural hair food at wellness.com. That's W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S-E.com. This podcast is brought to you by Just Thrive, a company that is near and dear to my heart and to my gut. Gut health is really connected to everything. And in today's world, we encounter a lot of things that tend to mess with our gut bacteria, from food to stress and an abundance of environmental toxins. And the gut has been called the second brain with good reason. We learn more each day about its vital role in all aspects of health, from skin to obviously digestion to energy and even brain health. And Just Thrive Probiotic is the first one I've seen and felt a noticeable difference from almost immediately. They have a patented Bacillus Indicus HU36 strain that helps turn your gut into an antioxidant factory, so it's working all the time to benefit you. Since focusing on my gut and making these a regular part of my life, I've definitely seen some big digestive and skin changes. And the Just Thrive probiotic is vegan, dairy-free, histamine-free, which is a big one for probiotics, non-GMO, and made without soy, sugar, salt, corn, nuts, or gluten. So it's safe for practically everyone. I even sprinkle it on my kids' food, and I bake it into products since it can survive up to 450 degree heat. And this is another important tidbit when it comes to probiotics. You want a probiotic that can survive at temperature because if it can't, it's likely not going to survive the pretty harsh atmosphere of your stomach. I love all of their products, and they I've especially been enjoying lately also their prebiotic drink, which is absolutely delicious. My kids love it too, and is another way to benefit your gut. You can check them out at justthrivehealth.com forward slash wellnessmama. And if you use the code wellnessmama15, you'll save 15% at checkout. So again, justthrivehealth.com slash wellnessmama and the code wellnessmama15. 
I also love that it seems like this is a recurring theme as well is, you know, it's tempting. We all want to find like the cool biohacky thing that is going to be the silver bullet, but consistently the top achieving people I know and the healthiest people I know, it's often those either free or very inexpensive things that are simple and foundational that seem to actually have the biggest impact. And so I love that we now have the technology in the health world to explore some of these more fringe things, whether it be stem cells or whatever, when, when the case requires them, but I'm with you at the end of the day, it's, the things that we all need to do anyway, that we can optimize like movement and sleep and drinking enough water instead of alcohol or whatever it may be that really do have the, the biggest impact long-term. And I'm a little blown away. You saw a 25% increase in HRV from taping your mouth. That's incredible. And that, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was pretty surprised as well. <laughs> was there a big adjustment with that, with just getting used to not being able to breathe through your mouth? I was surprised there actually, there actually wasn't. I think once you're out, your body just adjusts. I mean, I think that, you know, breathing through your nose is sort of what you're probably supposed to be doing anyway. Uh, you know, I'm fortunate. I don't have like any weird sinus issues or, or other things. So this, this may be different for different people, but as soon as I started doing it, I kind of transitioned over pretty much with no problem. Well, I'll make sure that book is linked in the show notes as well, because it is fascinating and would encourage the readers. Yeah. From the sleep perspective. Um, I'm curious if you have any crazy, weird, more fringe health hacks that you do beyond the foundational. <laughs> uh, I have some, so I've, I've kind of recently gone somewhat deep down the, uh, down the rabbit hole of like environmental contaminants and endocrine disrupting hormones and chemicals and things like this. So I got this egregiously challenging and complex, uh, water filtration systems <laughs> installed in my house. You know, it's like 25 foot high water filter thing with 19 steps that filters every bit of water that comes in the house. So like that's something that, that I recently started doing. Uh, the other thing that I started doing, which again, I think is more basic than anything, but trying to be very intentional about spending at least two to three hours outside in the sun a day. I set up my workstation. So like, even when I'm on the computer, I'm working outside, even if it's under shade, not in direct sunlight, whatever. But I found that doing even just that really has helped me from a, feels like an energy standpoint, you know, my, my skin feels healthier. My stress levels feel, feel lower. So I, I, I feel really good about that one. And then honestly, this is probably still pretty fringe, but I'm happy to talk about it. But I have found legal psychedelic therapy, like using ketamine assisted therapy and the like, actually super, super transformative and helpful in my own life. Like doing ketamine assisted therapy now is totally legal. Uh, you can do it via, even online, like something like mindbloom.com. You can basically get them to send you, a, you know, something in the mail. They give you through a, a guided meditation system, give you a, a bunch of prompts and ways to reflect and think. And I've found that ketamine is a really useful tool when it comes to like actually reflecting on things going on in my life, my own well-being, you know, and, and sort of do some of the reflection that I mentioned earlier around what's causing stress in my life. What do I need to change? And, and how can I like show up just as a, a better, more fully present, um, you know, happier version of myself? I'm glad you brought that up as well. I've had a couple guests recently who have talked about the assisted psychotherapy with different types of psychedelics. And I think this is another conversation that's becoming more mainstream and that has some pretty profound possible effects. I know we've got other substances in clinical trials that will hopefully be available for even things like PTSD and more severe things soon, but it's exciting that so many of these things are becoming part of the forefront of conversation and sunshine. That's another one that's been unfairly villainized for a long time. And, and like you, I notice a huge difference when I get outside natural light and a lot of it. Um, so I think that's an important conversation to keep having as well. And when people ask for health advice, that's one I give often is just go outside as soon as possible after waking up and get natural light. Like I promise it's more effective than any supplement you can take. Totally. Yeah. I mean, this is one of those areas that I think, uh, you know, a lot of people would point to, oh, you must wear sunscreen every time you go outside. Cause like it's going to give you cancer or other issues from the studies I've looked at. And also my own experience, like a lot of the, a lot of the stuff, you know, a lot of the like must wear sunscreen every time you go outside. I think that that applies to people that may be already in a, in a pretty like in highly inflamed state or someone who doesn't have their, you know, their diet and, and a bunch of other things kind of already dialed in for, for someone who's in good health, like just based on how I feel and some of the lab results and biomarkers that I, that I test on a regular basis. I don't think that sunlight is doing anything bad to, to my body. It's certainly not at, at this stage. Um, I think it's actually way worse if you're avoiding the sun at all times, 
wearing sunscreen all the time when you get exposed to it. And then maybe a couple times a year when you go to the beach, you know, applying sunscreen, laying outside in the sun for eight, 10 hours a day, like that seems way less ancestrally appropriate and, and sort of like a normal behavior pattern than getting outside for a couple hours a day and getting real kind of sun on your skin. Yeah, you know, there, there's actually a, a bunch of, in my newsletter a couple of months ago, I mentioned and, and did kind of a review of a bunch of the studies that point towards the benefits of just making sure that you're getting enough light, light exposure. And from a mitochondrial function, happiness, you know, energy, mood, the way that your body operates standpoint, it does feel to me like getting enough sun is just a key input that not enough people are talking about today. And it, if I look at things through like a sort of paleo lens, you know, paleo from a diet standpoint was basically like our ancestors used to eat these foods. Now we don't, and we are sick today. I think that a similar thing, or you could make a similar argument of like our ancestors used to be outside 24 seven. There was not even an inside, you know, it's just, it wasn't an inside. Now we are inside most of the time and that is causing some issues. Like, I think that that sort of thought pattern applies. And so I'm pretty, I would expect that we're going to see a lot of studies over the coming decades around the impact from a positive health standpoint on just getting enough sun and getting outside a decent amount and, and what that does for like health, longevity, energy, and the like. I agree. And to circle back to the kind of like media misconceptions when it comes to climate change or agriculture or meat consumption, I think there's a lot of these when it comes to sun exposure as well. And we've latched onto these sound bites about sunlight and skin cancer, which you could certainly make a really solid argument against just on that level. But when you actually go back to your point earlier to first principles and also look at the data, it is much more risky to avoid the sun than to get too much sun exposure. And even like people who end up getting skin cancer still get more benefits from the sun than if they had avoided the sun. And we know that vitamin D deficiency among other sunlight related deficiencies are connected to potentially a lot of different types of cancers. I had the same firsthand experience as well, coming from like an Irish Scottish background, my skin was not very tolerant to the sun when I was in an inflamed state. And when I adjusted my diet and got rid of inflammation, I now can be in the sun all day without getting sunburned at all. And my vitamin D levels have adapted and I feel so much better. So I always encourage people to like question when there's a belief like that the sun is bad to really go back and question and look at the data, because I don't think that there is a strong case for the sun being harmful at all. Yep. I, I totally agree. And I, I think that, you know, one thing that I struggle with just in, in general with a lot of the quote unquote studies that are done today is that you're sampling from a population that by and large is just not healthy. Uh, and so when you're running some of these studies, like correlation and, and all sorts of things are, can just run rampant because, you know, we're, we're at a point where I think almost half of the population is, you know, unhealthy from a obesity overweight standpoint, but not to mention like gut dysfunction, dysregulation, hormonal dysregulation, you know, there, there's just so few like healthy pockets of people where I think that you could look at something like sun exposure and to one person that's dealing with a lot of inflammation who has been eating a super inflammatory diet for decades, putting them in the sun all day versus putting, you know, someone who's been paleo exercising, getting enough sunlight every day in the sun for the same amount of time. Like those people are just going to have completely different responses, which I think makes it really hard to generalize nutrition and some of these other health recommendations from a small sampling to the broader population. Such an important point. Yeah, completely agree with that. Another question I love to ask toward the end of interviews, and I'm curious if you have any updated recommendations, is if there's an, a book or a number of books that have had a profound impact on your life, and if so, what they are and why. Yeah, so I think that you you always find the, or I've always found in my life, different books resonate at various times. And when I was 17, I think, I read The Alchemist for the first time, which at the time was the first book that made me really be like, whoa, I can actually like chart my own path. And, you know, I can, I can do something different. And I don't have to stay in the, the suburbs where I grew up. I don't have to like, you know, become an accountant or, or anything like that. Like I can actually figure out my own path. And so that really resonated me, with me at that time. Uh, I would say more recently, one of the books that, that had kind of a big impact on me was I finished uh, this sci-fi series called The Three Body Problem, which is phenomenal in my opinion, but just makes you think, and kind of get out of the day-to-day -day of what are the problems in the world and society, what's going on in the U.S., what's going on in my community, and sort of broadened my horizons a little bit uh, to think more on a like, you know, 100,000, 10,000 year timescale, which was kind of a, a fun exercise. And so I think that 
The Alchemist was sort of like the first book that really changed my perspective and made me think, wow, I can, I could probably do something. And, it, and I'm sort of up to me to author the life story that I want to live. Uh, and then that book most recently sort of helped put, put some things in perspective where, you know, some of the problems that are, that we have today, I'm like, well, you know, these are problems, but also on a 10,000 or hundred thousand year time scale, like what do these matter? I still need to refocus and, you know, do, do what I'm doing in the present. And then, and then most recently too, I highly recommend, I've recommended and bought this book for like 10 friends, but a book called the surrender experiment has really been helpful with me being, you know, kind of working on my own spiritual practice and establishing a sense of presence. Uh, and, and some of that, some of those things that I think are really important to get by in a, in a stress minimal way in today's society. So yeah, let's say those are three. Those are a couple of new ones too. I'll put those links in the show notes, you guys at wellnessmama.fm so you can find them. And I'll put links of course, as well to you guys, but where can people find out more about the regenerative work you guys are doing and about Kettle and Fire in general? Absolutely. Yeah. So if you just Google Kettle and Fire regenerative, uh, they can learn a lot more about the work that we're doing with our regenerative bone broth line with, uh, we're making some donations to support people that are trying to get regenerative farms off the ground or transition their farms to regenerative agriculture. Uh, they can learn more about uh, this, the practices that we go through when we source our bones, when we, you know, the partners that we work with, how we evaluate someone for how they're following regenerative practices, all of that. So I would just Google kettle and fire regenerative. It should be the first landing page that comes up. I believe it's kettleandfire.com slash regenerative. And I'll make sure that's linked as well. Um, Justin, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time and for what you guys are doing on a large scale and what all of us are hopefully going to be doing on a small scale to reverse some of these issues we have going on. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on. This is great. And thanks as always to you guys for listening and sharing your most valuable resources, your time and your energy with both of us today. We're so grateful that you did. And I hope that you will join me again on the next episode of the Wellness Mama podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time and thanks as always for listening.